0: If you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark, chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, or follow on the screens each side of me. This is the word of the Lord. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to him, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So ends the reading of God's Word. Children, ages three through kindergarten, may not proceed to the little landing if they did.
1: Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. We have the opportunity uh, this very Lord's Day to take a pause before we return back to the series in 1 Samuel next Sunday, and under the elders' direction, proclaim the glories of God's design for the local church in deacons. Elders are plurality that minister the word in prayer, according to the New Testament, very plainly. Deacons are the ones who carry out the teaching of the gospel by extending mercy to the people in the body and those outside the body, as a fulfillment of that gospel declaration, as the hands and feet, the flesh and blood, the demonstration of the gospel, as every healthy church flourishes and functions. The book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 tells us when that happens, many come to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a strategy for church growth and evangelism. This is a strategy for obedience to the New Testament and to the whole Bible, and it's a strategy to bring God glory. So we're going to look briefly at the passage Larry just read out of Mark chapter 10. Let's ask for God's help one more time as I pray. Help me, Father, to make plain and clear the very word you've given me from Mark 10. Show us Christ, the supreme deacon. Cause us to worship him and desire to be receiving from him all the mercy he has to give so powerfully that we then become mercy givers ourselves. Transform us, reform us, Welcome us into the great work that you're doing, Lord Jesus, to bless with mercy your church on the earth, to bless with mercy the lost that live on the earth who then might be saved. Thank you for this privilege to lay some deep and important groundwork for the very future of this church and its identity. I pray that not long from now, In name and in function, you would have healthy elders and deacons functioning, growing, alive, thriving, gospel proclaiming, gospel demonstrating, sinner saving, God glorifying in this church, I pray. In his and your sweet name, I ask all these things. Amen. At the height of Moses' fear... As to whether he could lead the rebellious people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, he cried out to the Lord, Please show me your glory. God said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name to you, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. All God's glory is in his name. All God's name is in his goodness. All God's goodness is in his mercy. The very essence of God is mercy. All he does for his people and for his world is show them mercy. We come to God today and all that we deserve is wrath and all that we get from him because of Christ is mercy. Mercy is the very air. It's the very substance. It's the very essence of God. Therefore, it's the very substance and essence of the church. God so required mercy to burst forth from the people of Israel that when they didn't show mercy, he was furious with them. One scholar showed me this recently. He pointed to Zechariah 7, verses 9 and following. Listen as I read the word of the prophet Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness, and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. God was so angry with Israel because they wouldn't pass through the mercy that they had received from him. They they wanted to be a cul-de-sac and not a conduit of mercy. God is furious with anybody who receives good mercy from him and then doesn't pass it on. So furious with the people of Israel that he put them into exile, into 70 years of slavery and captivity in Babylon because, in part, they wouldn't show the mercy to others that he had shown to them. It's a stunning stunning connection with prayer at the end of that verse in verse 13 it says as I called they would not hear so they called and I would not hear. You don't have a prayer week at a church without a plan for showing mercy. God says Did you say something? So no surprise when Christ the Son of God comes and His entire ministry is mercy. Everything about Jesus' ministry is mercy. Over and over, he is showing mercy to the world. At the climax, he shows mercy in in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, but he shows mercy in his teaching, in his feeding, in his miracles, in his healing, in the way he corrects his opponents, in the way he even brings down judgment on those who are bent for destruction. He's showing mercy the whole time. Mercy defines Christ and his ministry, for Christ himself is God. We see that he then calls himself in this stunning passage, the apex, most important passage, almost assuredly in Mark, the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10:45. "For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. He came not to be served, but to serve," meaning serving mercy for a higher cause, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus presents himself as the supreme deacon by coming and taking on flesh, living a gracious and merciful life, and then dying on the cross in mercy. He shows us God's mercy. He comes and doesn't just reveal and show us God's mercy, but he implants it in us and transforms us so that we are now recipients of mercy and purveyors, free givers, and makers of mercy ourselves. Just before he's about to go to his death here at Mark chapter 10, he says, don't think I came that you would serve me. You're not my deacon, I'm yours. If you try to serve me, you undermine my nature and my mission. I came to serve you. I came to be your minister of mercy. I am all fullness, you are empty. I am life itself, you are dead. I am sinless, you are depraved in all you think and do. I am goodness itself, you call evil good. You don't serve me, I serve you, Jesus says. I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So I have two aims in this message. Aim number one, that you would receive the mercy of Christ and be stunned and amazed that he came to cause his mercy to be received and dwell within your heart such that you are transformed into not only a mercy receiver from Christ, but a mercy maker in all spheres of your life. Aim number two, that you would be able to see how Jesus is not only making of us, but of his disciples, deacon types, mercy ministers so that you will know what it's like to spot deacon leaders in our church because you'll see them doing these things by the way God has equipped them and trained and built them up and blessed them and gifted them. And you will know what every one of us is to aspire to. Before we're done, I'm going to call every one of us to say, Lord, make me a mercy minister, a deacon. Not in the office merely. Some will aspire to that office, praise the Lord. But every believer of Christ, everybody who's received the benefit of the ransom, the many that he just proclaimed to us in verse 45, will want to respond by saying, I join you, Jesus, in your mercy ministry. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm going to hoard what you give me. Keep it to myself and never let it go. No, no. I am going to be a person who's living with a risk-taking, generous, other-centered, eager life of pouring your ministry, not just in me, but through me to the world around me. That's my two aims. In Mark 10, Jesus is coming to the climax of his earthly ministry just before he enters Jerusalem and enters into the final week of his life on earth. He's performing miracles and healings and he's teaching and his disciples gather around him and an argument grows among them over which is the greatest. chapter 9, verse 33, there's a debate about who's first and last, and Jesus resolves it by saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, deacon. That word servant is you must be a deacon. Meditating on that makes me say, oh, Jesus, I see what you're doing. You're presenting yourself as the supreme deacon, and you're calling us to follow your example and become with you deacons in the true definitional sense of what drives us and what our life is like and what we're looking for and what we're thinking about and what we value. He's making deacons out of his disciples just as he is out of us right now. Servants, deacons who brim with mercy because they've received so much mercy from the Lord, they can't help but give mercy away to those that come across their path. In fact, they're eager for the Lord to bring needy people across their path. They move toward need, not away from need. Oh, may that mark us. They're marked by a joyful, self-denying kind of service that seeks to bless others' joy. They recognize this massive gap between the great promises Jesus proclaims and the difficult pain people have in their lives. And they say, I can stand in that gap. I can pray. I can drive. I can encourage. I can teach. I can give. I can supply. Put me in that gap, Lord. Possibly because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the band of disciples around him are thinking, okay, our rabbi is going to become a king, and a king needs a court, and I sure would like to get in on the ground floor of this kingdom, whatever thing this Jesus has got going on. I believe he's king. I just want to be court jester or whatever. Verse 35 and 36, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up unto him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's just ironic the way they talk, isn't it? Of course Jesus is going to do tons of things that you're not even going to ask him for. That's what he comes to do to be your deacon, to be your servant, your mercy minister. And you've got something in your head you want to ask him to do for you. And, And notice the emphasis of Jesus' response. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Emphasis on the me. Remember who you're talking to, James and John. Don't miss the irony that's dripping in the interchange. Of course, Jesus is about to do great and marvelous things for them. They're not impertinent with this question. Just before John records in chapter 14, he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So they're saying, okay, we've got something to ask you to do for us. Well, they're not interested in asking for Jesus' glory. They're interested in asking for their own glory. They ask, who gets to sit on your right hand and on your left in your kingdom to come? They're leveraging the fact that they came in on the ground floor of Jesus' ministry. It's a little bit like in 1984, you bought a whole pile of Apple stock. When they decided to invent a computer and gave it a stuffed animal name like Macintosh, well, you'd be rich now with money at least. So they're leveraging their initial ground-level entry into the ministry of Jesus, and they want to sit on the right hand and on the left. And he takes the opportunity here in this climactic passage of the book of Mark to make deacons out of them, to, to embed a mercy in their head and in their thinking. And, and I'm praying right now that in my mind and in yours, there's a kind of a deacon-like mercy cherishing that wells up in our heads and, and that you're thinking about yourself as one who has received such stunning mercy from Christ, but also one who, who whose life will not be curved inward on yourself, but will be generously open and aim toward the extending of that mercy to others. Jesus welcomes these disciples into his mercy ministry. He reforms them and their thinking of what greatness means, and he transforms them into recipients and givers of mercy. He does those three things for these disciples in this passage. He'll do the three for us. He welcomes them, he reforms them, and he transforms them. First look at his welcome, verse 37 and 38. They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You say, I'm coming into glory. You're right. I'm a king. I'm entering into my glory. But you don't know what you're asking to sit on my right and on my left. My glory looks different than you think it does. When I came and began my ministry, my cousin John baptized me in the Jordan River because my glory looks like a drowning, it looks like a lynching, a murder. There's betrayal and brutality and treason and violence. The Father has planned that I drink to the bottom the ocean of the cup of His wrath against all the sin of the world. You know how angry God was to send a flood in Noah's day? I'm drinking the global ocean of that flood down so that no one who trusts in me will ever have to touch that poisonous liquid. But rather sit at the Father's banquet of joy in His home under His blessing forever and ever. You don't want to be on my right hand and left. There will be two people on my right hand and my left, and you don't want to ask to be one of them when I'm in my glory. Verse 39, and they said to him, we're able. Hmm. You don't get it, do you, James and John? Look at how patient Jesus is as he corrects them. Verse 39 again, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. I'm welcoming you into this mercy ministry in a way you don't even realize. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They're going to die, in other words. They're going to give of their lives the call on these deacon-type disciples, all who would call Jesus Lord and Savior, all who follow after Jesus, are going to die It's a giving of our lives, isn't it? He says, but to sit at my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And the passive there points to the fact that God has prepared who is at his right hand and on his left when he's on the cross and who's at his right hand and left when he's in his seated glory in heaven but don't miss how he's welcoming us into his mercy ministry. A sober welcome into the giving of ourselves, the dying of, a, of ourselves a thousand times a day for the extending of mercy. That's why mercy extending is so hard to do. That's why the Israelites didn't do it. That's why that there's so little understanding of what true deacon ministry looks like in a church. It means people who are following Christ, die to themselves a thousand times a day and say, I'm going to inconvenience and deny myself in order that I might bless you with some joy in your salvation or present to you the gospel for the very first time that you might be saved. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. There's the reward and there's the sober, severe invitation and welcome. First Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus was seen in his humble, deacon-like, mercy-responding glory when he was insulted. So if you're insulted for his sake, the spirit of glory rests on you too. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler like the two hanging on Jesus left and right. Don't suffer for the reasons they were there. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And call to deacon ministry, both as official deacon leaders, as some are called to in the church, and the call that's on all of us to follow Christ is a call to suffering. Jesus welcomes James and John and the rest of the 12, and he welcomes us to this following in his severe glory. It tells us in this very first moment to beware of our zeal, to stoke our greatness. It's a chief sin among the poison sins Christ drinks down to the bottom to Take from us on the cross in pursuing our own greatness, you and I show ourselves unable and unwilling to follow Christ in his servant hearted, deacon like ministry of mercy. I think the self esteem movement in the modern American culture, including in many churches, has betrayed the church. I think it yields a lifetime of sorrow and causes a deadly boredom in Jesus Christ. When I look at him in the Bible, And when I see the way he's so tender with his slow to believe, confused mind, sinful intended disciples like me, and when I see him giving such beautiful examples, saying I'm the supreme deacon and I'm welcoming you to join me in this ministry of mercy as deacons with me, I find anything but boredom welling up in my heart. I find instead a desire to to go low, to, to decrease in order that Christ might increase. He welcomes us. The Spirit of God right now is convicting anyone in the hearing of my voice that there are subtle, betraying impulses of personal greatness in you. Let the Spirit convict you of those. He's doing it because He loves you. That's why those conviction feelings are there. He's loving you right now. Because He has something far better for you than your personal greatness. Not only does Jesus welcome us into becoming deacons like he's the supreme deacon, but he reforms us with a vision of true greatness. Look at how the conversation goes on. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Who do you guys think you are? You, you think you get to pull Jesus aside, keep Peter out of the conversation, keep the rest of us out of the conversation, and you get to finagle to get to his right hand and left. You've got, you've got money and perks, and power, and prestige in your intent, not the glory of God in Jesus Christ, nor love for the lost or one another. There's confusion deep inside the disciples, and Jesus is just about ready to say goodbye to them. So he teaches them so patiently and so deeply here in verse 42. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. I'm reforming you here in your vision of greatness. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your deacon." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Don't, don't be like those who insist on leadership. They talk louder and they pound harder and they manipulate and they stamp their feet and they fish for compliments and they assert themselves. That's what lost and blind people do to find greatness. And when they get it, they hate it. But if you're mine, Jesus says, if you're mercied by me, transformed in heart by me, you will be great the way I am great, by being a servant, a deacon, a minister of mercy to the needy. Go low, and I will lift you high. Be last, and I will make you first. Be a slave to righteousness for everyone, and I, your master, will welcome you into my joy forever. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John 12. The writer of Hebrews says the same. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That serving is deacon again. The mercy and love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end you you enter into deacon ministry whether you become uh, one who is overseeing a, a deacon ministry and other deacon types whether you're an official with hands laid on you or you're just the rest of us who are all called to this Christ-like, deacon-like ministry, when you enter into this ministry, something exciting happens inside of you. You start serving people. You start caring for other people, and it gets to be uh, addictive. It's a thrill. You just say, I can't wait to find people to encourage and serve again. And it's because you get addicted to God. He's there in that. His mercy is flowing through that. And you say, I don't want to do anything in my life that's just plain old small and selfish anymore. I want to do stuff that cares for the needs that I have personally and in my family, but I want to keep serving other people everywhere I go and every day I live. That's what deacon types do. They come to the end of their day and they say, There's no doubt in my mind that God is real. There's no doubt in my mind the Bible is real. There's no doubt in my mind heaven is real and I'm going there. And there's no doubt in my mind that I'm real. Oh, for a movement of Christians who are so absolutely confident in all those things because they are a mercy-making, deacon-like people all the time. And they're constantly living that way so that their confidence in God just beams out of them like life unto life, and everybody that comes around them says, you are from another planet. Well, I'm at least going to one. Paul said to Timothy, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's a heavenly greatness with Christ that far outstrips the paltry so-called greatness of the world. So, which greatness do you pursue? There are two kinds, and there are only two kinds. There's the used car lot, airfield floppy man greatness, or there's the go low, receive mercy, give mercy, follow Jesus greatness. There's only two kinds. After welcoming us, reforming us, then Jesus does his greatest mercy. He transforms us. Look at the solid ground and foundation of his teaching. It begins with the word for in verse 45 because it's the basis, it's the footing, it's the deepest underpinnings below the basement of everything he's teaching to his disciples. It's why it's become the bellwether signature verse of the book of Mark, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples and every other natural person thinks if you're the king, if you're a ruler, if you're a president, if you're somehow in leadership, you've got to prove that by having everybody else serve you. You make statues of yourself and you sit in uh, white houses or palaces and castles and other places and you have other people come around and you have them all serve you because you're so fragile. All human efforts at leadership is an exercise in hypocrisy. I am weak. I am broken. I'm like the rest of you, prone to wander, going to die eventually, and I need to have all this false, hypocritical, duplicitous game playing around me to prop me up. That's the way all human leadership functions. Jesus says, I am in fact the son of man. It's not a reference to his humanity. It's not a reference to his being a man like you and I are women and men. That's not what he means. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7. That son of man title is a throwback to Daniel chapter 7. Even more clearly, he's using vocabulary in this verse that clearly is rolling around in his head because it's a borrowing of Greek vocabulary from the Greek translation of Daniel chapter 7 and Isaiah 53 overlaid on top of each other. I'm not going to read Isaiah 53 to you, but listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and you can see what kind of Son of Man, Ruler, Supreme King, Jesus claims to be when He takes to Himself the title, Son of Man. "'I saw,' Daniel says, "'in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom.'" And all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, remember Daniel and all the kingdoms and how big and strong they are made out of bronze and and clay and gold. Well, those kingdoms are going to be destroyed because down at their feet, this tiny little rock is going to come. That's me. I'm the son of man. And my little tiny rock is going to explode all those kingdoms and become a kingdom bigger than the world. One no other kingdom will ever replace. That's what Jesus says when he says, I'm the son of man. But he says, even me as the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve He's not just talking His disciples into becoming deacons. He's not just preaching them into becoming deacons. He's not just theologizing them into becoming deacons. He's not just pushing and pressuring them into becoming deacons. He's giving them the last thing they deserve. He's giving them the very last thing they have a right to expect from Him. He's coming as the Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, son of God, son of man, ruling in everlasting dominion and authority. And he says, I'm going to die to buy your mercy. Luo in Greek. I'm going to pay the ransom. That's how big my mercy is. I am going to die to pay for the mercy you need for the sinful ideas you have rolling around in your head and heart and for all the sins that you and the world represent in in an image as, as dark as the flooded brown water covered earth with carcasses floating in it from Noah's day. That's what I came to drink. That's what I came to die for and ransom you out of with my mercy. To whom is that ransom paid? Don't ever say the devil. Who has been violated by the sin of sinners? God. Who is the judge who has the sufficient goodness, holiness, justice, and wisdom to pass judgment against sinners? God. To whom is the debt of sin owed? God. The devil is just his bailiff. At the launch of Jesus' ministry, he brings mercy. He said way back in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the freedom, this is the mercy, this is the salvation, the liberty that Christ came to give us by dying for us and paying the ransom to God that we might be restored. That the debt of our sin might be paid, that the guilt that we own might be his and the righteousness that he owns might be ours and that we might come before the Lord having assurance that all we will receive from him is mercy in our time of need and that we will be so transformed inside our identity that we will not look for opportunities to advance our own greatness, but that we will love the opportunity to decrease and advance Christ's greatness. John the Baptist said, Now my joy is full. He must increase that I might decrease. Paul makes it plain that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth and that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time, 1 Timothy 2.4. So this is our salvation. This is God desiring us to be saved. This is what it means to be saved, to be enlisted in this mercy ministry mission of becoming a deacon-like person. We are ransomed indeed Some of you will feel overwhelmed by the call, not only to the the official call to become a deacon, but maybe you'll feel overwhelmed by this vision of discipleship that I'm laying before you, following Christ as our supreme deacon of mercy. Listen to Peter's encouragement to his readers, and it comes as the Spirit's encouragement to us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that god supplies in order that in everything god may be glorified through jesus christ it's as if the holy spirit writing the bible through peter knows every one of us in this room whether we are an elder or a formal deacon or whether we are deacons because we're followers of christ feel overwhelmed at how hard it is it seems like such a high vision how can we do this well first peter 4:10 and 11 promises we do it by the strength that god supplies Do you realize the very heart of God in designing the local church with the word thundering forth? And that creating this massive gap between the pain and the sin and the fallenness of the world. And yet the glories of God are not in any way diminished or reduced or minimized. But they are held high and maximized and spoken in all their ethereal glory. And yet the gap between the difficulties of the world, the breakdown of relationships, the burdens of fear and sin, sleepless nights and illness, difficulties of finances and relationships and emotions, that gap is not there by accident. It's not as if God doesn't know it. He put it there. He put it there. So that we would come to him and say, Lord, would you come in the midst of this great gap between the great need this world has had ever since Adam and Eve's fall into sin and the great glories which you have revealed to us in your son Jesus Christ and his ransoming and purchasing mercy for us to make us men and women of mercy. It's no wonder Martin Luther in the 1570s in Germany not only preached the gospel with blowtorch fire, but he also started up a ministry of the diaconate to care especially for the children who were hungry and disabled in the cities of Germany where he served. It's easy to forget that Martin Luther had a whole bunch of people coming to him for crutches. John Wesley began medical dispensaries in the mid-1700s in London, England because the Scriptures commanded the compassion of Christ for the sick in order that they might then become well, hear the gospel, and get really well. On the mission field of India, the great William Carey preached the gospel, translated the Word of God into Bengali and Sanskrit, among other languages, but simultaneously reformed abhorrent abuse of women, and brought new medical breakthroughs to India that God has used to bless that nation to this day. In revival of 1906 in Wales, entire cities like Newcastle, Wales, had their entire populations of the homeless poor wiped out in a year. 300,000 people were in that city at the time. The gospel so powerfully pressed into the lives of men, women, and children that they began to mercifully give away food, potatoes mainly, to the poor who were begging alongside the streets. And in one year's time, a quarter of 300,000 people who were homeless and without food were fed and found homes in one year. Give me a government program that can do that. I'm not calling for a return to the calendar of the past. I'm calling for Christ-like, cross-ransomed people who've been so mercied by the Savior that mercy flows like a river through us. That's what I'm calling for. Deacon ministry is already functioning and well and alive at the landing, praise the Lord. But it's everyone's desire to be deacon-like in the Christ-like sense, the Mark 10 sense. But many in this room should aspire to be deacons. You should desire to become a deacon, 1 Timothy 3 style. And from this vision Jesus gives in Mark 10, everyone should know exactly how to pray for those who are deacons plus how to pray for all the rest of us who are on the path of growing in our discipleship and mercy-making like Christ. May this biblical vision of deacons burst forth like tulips in Holland, like sap from a maple tree, like Christ from the grave. Let's pray. I'm asking for a miracle, Lord. I know that. Many questions remain. Your word is sufficient for them all. You have done a great thing at the landing. From the basement of Kevin and Stephanie's home to the location over in Proctor to this Duluth location and wherever you will have us be, you are the greatest thing about the landing. You have loved us. You have strengthened us. You have established us. You have blessed this church with good and godly elders. And you have blessed us with deacons. Not just the official ones. We'll name and identify and lay hands on them and pray for them soon. But with a whole church load of deacons. I can think of a dozen examples of Christ-like, deacon-like mercy giving when I look at the faces of the people in this very room. And there's many more than I can think of. It's fun to preach a sermon asking for something you're already giving. (laughs) It makes me feel so good. Keep doing it, Lord. Keep doing what you're doing here. Keep blessing this precious body so that we could turn and be a blessing to one another and to those around us who are not expecting us to bring a good word of mercy. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.